Welcome to Mind Matters News. I'm your non-copyrightable host, Robert J. Marks. We are talking to attorney and author Richard W. Stevens about artificial intelligence and patents. Uh, Richard, welcome. Thank you very much, Bob. One of the things that you talked about last time was the criterion for patentability. And one of them was non-obvious. I would translate that maybe into the idea of creativity. There has to be evidence of creativity for a patent. How do we define creativity or this non-obviousness for patents? That's uh, one of the interesting things, the non-obviousness. Um, there's, there are a few ways to, to, to try to describe it. In our last broadcast, we talked a little bit about how it's a, it's a subjective matter, but the courts, uh, the patent office, and the powers that be have tried to, to coalesce around a few definitions. They provide a guide. For example, um, to decide whether or not there's enough creativity, the courts may ask whether the invention um, results from, and this is a quote, whether the invention results from inferences and creative steps that a person of ordinary skill in the art would employ or something else that's better. So it, th that's kind of, that's kind of it. it uh, the, at, at one level, is this something that somebody who works in this area would have said, well, that's obvious, duh, you know, uh, anybody would do that. Um, and then it would not, it would not be uh, non-obvious because it's somebody would testify it's obvious and be able to show, yeah, we do this all the time, or we'd almost do the exact same thing. And your, your, yours is just a tiny variation on what everybody else does. Um, so that's one, one way to draw the line. Another way to say it is that a new invention has to produce unexpected or surprising new results that were not anticipated by the existing technology or what we call the prior art is the term of art, prior art. So it's, it's a non-obvious invention is unexpected by a person who has ordinary skill in that area. Uh, for example, the telephone invented by Alexander Graham Bell was not obvious to engineers and scientists of that day. I see. Uh, boy, you used uh, some words there that I want to unpack a little bit. In, uh, as a person that plays around with AI, I claim that creativity is non-computable. And therefore, artificial intelligence doesn't have the ability to do anything creative because creativity, I believe, is non-computable. But AI can generate unexpected and surprising results, and it does it all the time. I'm thinking about the, uh, oh, when Lisa Dell, who was the world champion in the board game of Go, was defeated by AI. At one point, the program made this incredible move, and all of the people watching said, whoa, that's a really interesting move. Nobody would have done that. It was unexpected, and it was surprising. And so this happens in artificial intelligence, but it doesn't pass the muster of creativity. In artificial intelligence, we define this as the Lovelace test, which is due to Summer Bringsjord at Rensselaer. He says that computers are going to be said to be creative if they generate something outside the explanation or the expectation of the programmer or somebody of equivalent skills. And those results can be, and I've used the word uh, unexpected and, and surprising. Do we have a conflict here? If, if AI generates this stuff, do we have a difference in meaning between unexpected and surprising? Ask yourself the question, what does unexpected mean? This is, this is where you kind of have the subjective, but it's not just subjective. It's, 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 it's even more than that. It's, it goes to the very heart 
of what it means to be human or what it means to be conscious. Okay. So, I mean, all this stuff starts to tie into that really interesting stuff. And so if you say something's unexpected, well, um, there were some interesting, um, interesting formulae that I learned when I was studying, you know, in, in school and, you know, learning about calculus and, oh, wow, that was, un- I didn't know that it would do that. Well, does that make it patentable? Does that make it unexpected? Or is it just something I didn't know about yet? And um, so that there's, there's that, the whole problem of trying to decide if you, if you're surprised, does that make it creative or that just means you're surprised. Um, I have six grandkids that live nearby and I've had the privilege of being able to watch them grow from zero to wherever they are today. And they've been surprised by all kinds of things, but that didn't mean that they, that it was, um, that it was somehow unexpected in a sort of grand sense. It was unexpected to them. So um, that, that's for me, the, the test to say, well, whether it's unexpected is, uh, doesn't have a lot of content all by itself. I see. Okay. So, um, you know, unexpected and surprising, would that, would that pass the muster of the patent office if AI did something like that? Well, unexpected and surprising. I guess if someone wanted to say, well, it wasn't obvious, that the result wasn't obvious, and, and it was also useful and you know, the rest. Um, I guess if it's not obvious, uh, the, ar- the argument might be, though, um, would somebody who was, you know, writing software expect something like this to occur? And so in the case of large search engines, software and things of that nature, they've gotten patents. Well, why? They've gotten patents because they were not obvious, meaning somebody who's just writing software for a living wouldn't wouldn't necessarily have come up with the algorithms, wouldn't have necessarily come up with the whole whole presentation of the software. So it's not obvious in that way, in that the person who works in that area wouldn't have just said, Oh yeah, I would have done that. So that's a little different from being unexpected. It's more like it's more like creative. <laughs> it's like a new way of thinking about a problem. And the new way is what makes us human. I see. You know, we, we did an experiment one time in um, swarm intelligence where we had a computer program where a bunch of predators uh, attacked a bunch of prey. And they were little dots in a little room and they would run around. And what we wanted to do was we wanted to perform evolution right. on these, uh, computer evolution, to see what strategy the prey should use to last the longest and we ran this, and it optimized to something which was incredibly surprising. And that surprising result was that the prey exercised self-sacrifice. It displayed self-sacrifice. So what happened is one little one little prey, we call them dweebs, would run around while the predator, which we call bullies, would chase this dweeb around while all, all of the other prey would kind of cower in a corner. And pretty soon that one prey would sacrifice itself, and then another one would come out and take its place. This was totally unexpected, the idea of self-sacrifice. But we looked at the program, and we finally said, you know, we searched through a bunch of different results, and oh, here's the result that performs the self-sacrifice. I can see where that came from. And so that did not pass the Lovelace test in terms of creativity because we were able to look at the software and explain why it did what it did. Okay, but you can look at any algorithm and do that. I mean, if you have the definition of the algorithm, then you can you can know what it does. Um, as as I forget who it was that said, uh, you know, uh, basically, if you have a pen and paper, you can solve any computer problem given enough time. Yes. 
And so um, that that that's the same here. If you know the algorithm, then you could iteratively or recursively figure out how that's going to run. And if you had to do it manually, you could do it. I mean, it's a, a could-do solution. But actually, interestingly enough, um, the description of the dweebs and the predators is not surprising. As a matter of fact, it's in nature. It is in nature, but the fact that our rules duplicated nature was pretty cool. Cool, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Cool, absolutely. But, okay. but, but but now one asks, is that non-obvious in the sense that, uh, you know, that's exactly why fish swim, swim in schools and why birds flock together? Exactly that reason, because the, the weaker ones will feed the, the predators while the others can get away, and that saves the, saves the stock. Well, I would say that the predator-prey problem would become creative if the prey all, all of a sudden turned and began attacking the predators. But there was no flexibility in the software for that happening. So therefore, that creative aspect would never happen. That would be an example of something which was creative. But the, uh, the software was unable to do that because we didn't allow it to do that. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, it, that, that's a very interesting little line being drawn. Uh, that's fascinating. Yes, if your software wouldn't, wouldn't have thought of it, then your dweebs wouldn't have thought of it either. Exactly, because there just wasn't the ability in the software to do that. So let's get back to, to U.S. patents for a little bit. Um, Currently, you've mentioned that only humans can be listed as inventors on U.S. patents. Is there a reason behind that law? Well, yeah. Uh, the reason probably goes back to antiquity. Uh, the The origin of patent law, as, as I have come to understand it, it kind of comes from, from two angles. I think it comes first, however, from the fact that somebody has made something special um, and devised a a machine or a tool or a process way back in the day. And then somebody else went and stole it and uh, built it and sold it. And they go, hey, wait a minute, I came up with that. And the other one, the other one says, yeah, and and so what? Um, and so the, no, the notion that there's an intrinsic unfairness to taking the work product of a creative person and ha- and that some derivative person just steals it and, uh, and uses it as if it were their own and makes all the money, there's just something wrong about taking that away. It's the notion of intellectual property is, is kind of gut level. Hey, I thought of that first. How come you're making a million and I'm still working in the back room here? So there's, there's that view. But um, and I don't know if it was ad hoc or just good thinking, but later on, economists uh, um, and political economist kinds of people looked at this and said, well, we can justify protecting the rights of a creator, of an inventor, in addition to the sort of moral notion that, hey, they came up with it first, they ought to have the right to it, at least for a certain certain while. But they came up with an additional justification, and that is if we protect patent rights. We protect someone's um, limited, time-limited right, but nevertheless right to exploit the results of their creativity and their ingenuity. That will stimulate people to do it because it won't be stolen. You don't have the free rider problem or you decrease the free rider problem. So if you if you can profit from it, then you're willing to spend more, invest more time, invest more money, corral more resources, hire more people to build new and fascinating things if you know that you can actually recoup your income over time by being basically having a limited monopoly on it for for 17 now 20 years 
or 14, whatever that is. So that, that whole notion of, of it's a political economy thing. This is good for society that we will stimulate inventors to spend money in this way that actually helps everyone ultimately, or certainly anyone who wants to use this kind of product. And so you have those, uh, what I see is those are the two main, main justifications. One is the moral right of the inventor. And second is the, uh, the social economy benefit of, of stimulating uh, creativity and innovation. We do have a number of different cases in technology where the best technology is not one. I'm thinking back to, for example, the war between beta and VHS hmm. or uh, Netscape, the, one of the first browsers being taken to court by Microsoft because because there was a, there was a lawsuit about that ex- Microsoft was stealing some of the technology of Netscape and uh I, I really like Netscape back in the days because it let you actually write uh, HTML software. It was it was really nice, and Explorer came along and wasn't quite as flexible. Hmm. So the best guy doesn't always win, do they? No, but that's the nature of that's the nature of the market in a lot of ways. Um, for example, the VHS and Beta. I was a big proponent of Beta as well, um, and uh, it was it was. Had to pry those out of my cold dead fingers when they finally got rid of beta. beta. But uh, I had beta as long as anyone could have it because it had so many things on it. Nevertheless, um, you know, as I understand it, you may know a ton more about it. But my understanding was that the Sony basically refused to license out uh, the beta technology at any rate that anybody uh-huh. could afford. So they said, "Well, we're going to, you know, we're we're going to play this monopoly for all it's worth." And they had every right to do that. It's not a bad thing. And then people had Betamaxes, as as I did, a couple of them. But the the guys that came up with the VHS uh, format, which is you know different tape, different formatting, right? Uh, the way the machines worked internally was somewhat different. So you see, you had the new, you had the uh, novel, you know, you had the you had the useful, and you had the non obvious. That is, it wasn't the same as Beta. It, it, just because you knew beta doesn't mean you know how to do VHS. So that gets a patent. But th- but the market aspects were the guys that came up with that were willing to license that out. So there were like, I don't know how many different manufacturers were making machines that supported VHS tape while Sony hung on tenaciously to their one and they were outsold. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it, it was, um, it was a product of the free enterprise system, which is incredibly resilient, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's the buyers that decided that they would rather go with the one where there were all these other manufacturers, a lot more price competition. And as soon as the uh, content creators were pr- producing VHSs, then there were so many more people using it. It just, that's how it works. That's how it works. And, and, and it's, there are a lot of proprietary, and you probably know this too, uh, computer companies that saw, you know, w- you know, we've invented the best mousetrap ever and we're not going to license it. And they ended up going out of business with their best mousetrap. Yep. Thank, thank you, Richard. This has been a fascinating talk. We've been talking to uh, attorney and author Richard W. Stevens. When we come back next week and talk about Mind Matters News, we're going to talk about a, re- a ruling in federal court that said that AI can't be issued patents, and we're going to peel that back and figure out what happened there. Until then, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. 
Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.